Well, hello and welcome to episode 430 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Nev, sitting in for Carlos this week and uh, hope everyone's had a great week. Uh, in this week's show, we've got more changes at ITA Airways in Italy, new union agreements at Ryanair and an A320neo lands with only 200 kilograms of fuel in its tanks. That might mean tea with no biscuits with the chief pilot. Uh, in the military, uh, an F-35 crashes near Hill Air Force Base in Utah. The pilot is safe, we're pleased to report. And we discuss former UK military pilots training China's Air Force. And we have a military list of affordable warbirds. So, Joe, joining me on the show tonight in the Plain Talking UK Master Suite studio, as always, is Matt. A, Hi, very, Matt. a very good evening. How are you? How are yeah. you? Very good. Very good, thank you. Lovely. Yes. What have you been up to this week? Anything well, exciting? Been, well, glued to my desk this week, because I haven't been on the road for three weeks, so there's a bit of a backlog of... Um, paperwork, yes. yes. Paperwork and, and things for me to do for work. So, uh, uh, But uh, apart from that, I took Thursday off and went down to White Waltham Aerodrome, not far from me, um, did a interview, which we'll tell you about, um, which Nick very kindly did for us as well. Mm. That's going to be another three-part series coming up in a couple of months' time. Oh, wow. Uh, which was very good indeed. Had a great time down there. Met met some people I knew actually down there as well. So that was good. Um, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. So, but uh, how's your week been, Matt? What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Sort of like you're trying to sort of rev myself back up into um, sort of out of holiday mode into the real world again. Um, that's been quite challenging. Uh, yes, my 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 work product productivity is perhaps not what it should have been Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, but uh, yeah, sort of settling back into it all now. It's been a sort of a, a mixed bag work-wise, but uh, yeah, all good, all good. Yeah, nice, mm. excellent stuff. Uh, joining us over the pond, as always, is the chap with a slight cold at the moment, I believe. <laughs> so uh, it's Armando. Yeah, hi guys. Sorry if I sound like a mix between Clint Eastwood and Marge Simpson. Oh! Um, <laughs> it's been a week. That's, that's, that's quite a thing. That's quite the mix, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Picture that. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm uh, happy to be back. Uh, I guess last week I wasn't on the show. We were. We took the family and some friends camping up in the wilds of eastern Tennessee, which was actually beautiful. And this week, Megan and I are over in Colorado Springs. I'm oh, officiating a, a retirement ceremony this yeah. evening. And uh, and then I'm in Denver next week for training recurrent in the Pilatus, um, and that's a week long thing. So it's been pretty busy here too. How has that come round again already? It only seems five minutes ago that you were doing this. <laughs> I said the same thing. Yeah, right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And, uh, well, special guest on the show this week uh, from somewhere close to Gatwick Airport in a hotel is, uh, well, I'll call him A320 Andy because that's how we know him. So, uh, <laughs> evening, Andy. How's, how's it going with you? Good evening. I feel like Captain Jeff. You're joining me live from Studio 21635 <laughs> in the lovely Gatwick Hilton Hotel. Yeah, there we are. Um, Very good. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Very good. Um I haven't enforced three days in a hotel here where I'm not really doing very much. Oh, how does that? I mean, right. I mean, that sounds all right to me, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this week I haven't really done a lot. And next week I'm going on holiday. So, yeah, I'm living my best Ooh. life. Oh, gosh. Anywhere nice, anywhere nice. Yeah. Off to Cyprus. Oh, lovely. Ooh. Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. Say, but uh, yeah. Thank, 
Unfortunately for all the listeners, I'm back again, but thanks for having me. <laughs> well, there's some nice stories to talk about tonight, uh, yeah, really which, good ones. which we thought you might uh, be able to contribute to. So uh, Ooh, yes. uh, so we thought we would uh, yes. ask you on. So really appreciate you coming on, Andy. Thanks so much indeed. Pleasure as always. And uh, so uh, we've got to say thank you to everyone in the chat room as well that's joining us tonight. Uh, I can see in there's Mazuz, uh, Arne Carlson. Uh, Richard Adams was in there briefly, but he's going to uh, join us or listen to the recording tomorrow because he's uh, unavailable later on tonight. Uh, Matt C. Dirk S. is in there. Hobby Time, uh, Main Man Micah, Jenny Parkinson, John Jester. Hello, John. Hope you are well. Uh, Masha's in there as well. And so is Pilot Pip also. <gasps> My goodness me, it's the lesser spotted pilot pip. Yes, about time we had a new podcast from you, young man. I noticed there's <laughs> some people uh, kicking off about that the other day, mm. saying, well, when are you going to do another one? So uh, mm. perhaps you'll tell us when that's going to be. Lovely. But, uh, like uh, looking forward to the next one. I, I, actually, on a serious note, I do like Pip's mm. uh, stuff that he does without really entertaining, um, but obviously they're both very busy flying, so it's difficult yeah. to, to get them. Very informative as well, to be fair. It is, yeah. very much so. Absolutely. So. Uh, well, don't forget, uh, you can... Uh, tune in to us uh, on uh, various platforms um, you can find us on youtube at plain talking uk and hit the subscribe button and the bell icon you'll be notified when we're live and recording new episodes we'd love to have you in the chat room as always so i think that's all the housekeeping out of the way so let's start the commercial segment off we go matt Well, this first one is from simpleflying.com and it says that ITA Airways Board of Directors revokes all power from Executive President Alfredo uh, Altavilla. Uh, so Italian flag carrier has confirmed that all powers have been revoked from the airline's Executive President. And the motion was first ordered last week and was approved in a meeting of the Board of Directors on October the 20th. Uh, ITA Airways confirmed the move in a statement released saying, the Board of Directors of ITA Airways held today fully confirmed the revocation of all of the powers of the Executive President, Alfredo Altavia, uh, uh, which was already ordered by a resolution on October the 12th and the attribution of those powers to the Chief Executive Officer Fabio Maria Lanzarini. Uh, this means that all power now sits with ITA, uh, the ITA Airways uh, Lazzarini, leaving him in charge of negotiations over the ongoing sale of the airline. Exclusivity over the next stage of the negotiations was given to a consortium involving New York investment group Sataris, uh, uh, Air France, KLM and Delta Airlines. However, the takeover talks have since stalled and at the end of uh, to the end of the last month the italian government has extended the deadline to the end of this month which is october the 31st uh, whilst the reason for the removal of the executive presence uh, president's powers has not been confirmed sources suggest that it is linked to the potential takeover bid according to the italian newspaper uh, il messagaro uh, the majority of the airline's board of directors blamed altavia for slowing negotiations with Sataris. 
despite the current instability, ITA, ITA Airways went on to reiterate its commitment to successfully running the airline, adding that the board of directors reiterated that the company's main task is to remain focused on the industrial plan, continuing along the road taken that it's providing better results than expected, with the aim of consolidating the relaunch of ITA Airways and protecting the company's workers who have taken the challenge. In spite of the ongoing takeover talks, ITA Airways has a lot to look forward to over the coming months. Last week, the airline announced three new intercontinental routes from its hub at Rome Fiumicino Airport. Uh, Tokyo, Haneda, De uh, Delhi and Male, uh, which will be operated by its uh, current long-haul fleet of Airbus A330-200 and A350-900 aircraft. Well, this airline just... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say about it. And there's always something happening, isn't there? Uh, from, <laughs> from the days of Alitalia to all the government intervention to what's going on here. Uh, it, it just It's just a continuing thing, isn't it? So I'm sure that they would quite like to get back to what I would call entirely normal operations but that that seems some is that, way is that possible though I mean seriously I mean I mean essentially I mean sort of reading between the lines it almost sounds like it's basically a a bust airline isn't it I mean it's, no it's no. Uh, well I, I think that they see back in well a long time ago I mean you know Alitalia was a pretty decent airline actually right. when it was uh, part of the star alliance group uh, and all the rest of it but um so much has happened since then with government interventions and uh, all sorts of other things going on with crewing and i think union difficulty as well so it's um a, a never-ending story and that uh, jenny in the uh, yes. chat room says don't, uh, don't ask so, so, don't ask <laughs> so yeah yeah yeah, yeah um, i do i do sound sound like that i mean thoughts uh, andy on on this situation well it's just alitalia mark 20 or whatever it is now it's the same <laughs> airline just being passed around renamed refinanced and now that's trying to be sold off obviously the board and the government aren't happy with the man who's trying to sell it off so they've replaced them i think that's it really isn't it Mm. That's that um, in a nutshell, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a sorry state. I know various airlines in Europe were looking at at one point uh, to purchase them, but that hasn't happened. So who knows what their future will be? They'll they'll be here. Mm. They're like, no, I, was, no, I, should, I we're not going to say that. They'll be around. They'll be around forever because Alitalia mm. won't go away. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I guess that is that. Perhaps I'm speaking out of turn here. Is there perhaps a chance? Uh, perhaps there's this. This is almost like a national pride now. I mean, it's been going on that long now that it's sort of like almost at all costs it mustn't fail. Well, yeah. And who else do they have really to call it a, a, a flag carrier? Mm. I mean, we've got yeah. Beer, but that's not a flag carrier really. They're, 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 owned, oh. by the, they're owned by the Spanish. And, um, <laughs> Andrew, please. Oh, sorry. Shall I pull the blade out? Oh, dear. I won't twist it. Oh, my back's really um, hurting. Right <laughs> and who else operates in Italy? EasyJet, um, Meridiana are gone now. Um, oh, Ryanair? Yeah, Ryanair. Yeah. So it is, I think it is a bit of national mm. pride as well. They want to keep this mm. airline going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, um, uh, Armando, from, from your sort of side of the, the water, I mean, any, any views on this? Unfortunately, no. I just don't know enough about the history of Alitalia and, and ITA. Is ITA? ITA? I see their airplanes, but we'll talk a little bit about government intervention a little bit later when we talk about the the Boeing Max 
Oh, oh, yes. oh no, yes, yes. really? That sounds terrifying. Well, <laughs> moving on to the next story, and it's Matt's turn to talk about Ryanair, of course, because it's the second story. Of course. And some agreement for a change uh, with the union. It's, it, it's, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? It's uh, mm. uh, Sky News, uh, news.sky.com is where this story comes from. And the headline is Ryanair and Unite sign cabin crew pay agreement. Uh, Ryanair has reached an agreement with cabin crew over pay and working conditions which means they will work five days on and have three days off uh, the budget airline said on thursday that it had signed a deal with unite the union representing cabin crew based in the uk for upfront and annual pay increases ryanair described it as bringing a significant restructuring of pay meant to deliver meant to deliver more guaranteed earnings and other pay and benefit improvements uh, crew will now have competitive starting pay and will work a fixed five days on three days off a core feature of this new agreement Ryanair said it uh, is sorry it said it's a clear path uh, helping crew to rapidly secure promotions to senior advisory and training roles Unite's uh, national officer Oliver Richardson said that we can confirm based on Unite proposals that we have reached an agreement in relation to pay we are continuing discussions on improving further terms and conditions in order to ensure our members equally share in the recovery of the airline post-COVID. Similar agreements have been worked on by Ryanair and its crew across Europe as after they went on strike in France and Spain in the summer. French air traffic controllers and airport staff also went on stri- strike as did Ryanair and Vueling cabin crew in Italy but strikes by fuel workers and check-in staff in the UK were avoided. Many British trade unions are preparing for strike action as the rising cost of living delivers an effective pay cut. Ryanair has announced uh, it is to grow beyond its COVID-19 staff numbers and creates uh, more than 2,500 jobs to carry uh, 200, 225 million passengers by 2026. Yes. I mean, it's it's good news, I suppose. It, you know, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I completely understand why people are striking. I do get that. Um, but also, uh, in a difficult time, I suppose, there is that, that concern, if you like, almost for, mm. you know, are, are we are we far enough the other side of um, COVID for this to be a safe thing for airlines to have to sort of, you know, well, there's, there's a always... lot of recovery still going on, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. And I think uh, Ryanair have had an interesting uh, relationship with the unions over the years. Um, but this is, you know, cl- clearly this is a move forward, uh, which is which is good stuff. Mm. But as, as you say about the COVID thing, well, there's still some quite difficult times in Germany and other parts of Europe as well at the moment. Um, mm. So, you know, it's not, it is not all over. And there's, you know, talk on the news today about the, you know, the rate increasing. Well, it would increase, wouldn't it? Because it's autumn, yeah. and, you know, that's, that's one of those things. But yeah. certainly the Brian have got their foot hard down at the moment in terms of the growth. Uh, yeah yeah it's it's, and i think i think there is this um you know and i think i've mentioned it before of course but they were one of the few a few airlines who didn't lay off a lot of their staff in in the whole sort of covid thing haven't they they just chose to furlough them instead where they could and maybe that's um you know you're not sort of seeing the disruption perhaps with that airline as you are with some other low-cost airlines Mm. they've made a lot of money this year Mm. exactly because of that they kept the staff Mm. they retained their staff and this is only good news for everybody, if you ask me. Ryanair have now got their 
fixed cost bid. They, they know what their costs are because they've got the agreement for however many years it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the cabin crew are happier because in airlines now, especially low cost, we're seeing a deluge of levers. They're just all gone because they're realizing they can get better jobs elsewhere for better money. Yeah. For I mean, cabin crew, especially again, low cost airlines, they're not treated the best. No. Unfortunately. Um, so I think I think it's good. It's always good when a, you can avoid some form of strike action, and that comes from a, a proper hard uh, lefty here. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I, any kind of stability. It, I mean, I, when I lived over there, I had a good friend that was a cabin crew at Ryanair, and I mean, sometimes he would <laughs> just talk about the the conditions and and just the work agreements, the con contract agreements and i it was all mind-blowing to me how they get treated mm. yeah i mean it's it is as andy said it's great that ryanair were, were able to retain the staff because you know all the, so many other airlines and the airport authorities themselves and the facilities mm. they you know, laid off stacks of people and you just can't bring them back quickly or, or hire new people quickly uh, because of all all the training and security and goodness knows what else you have to mm. go through so uh, no it was definitely a very much a good call um andy what, what's your sort of attitude towards uh, fuel management in your car i mean I, I get a, i get a nosebleed in mine if it goes below a quarter um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine your car ever going but like anywhere near a quarter never i've got to be honest <laughs> I've, I've got to admit i take a very different attitude to work and to flying it drives my wife wild because i will quite often ride around with the light on and my oh, answer is no. the car's the car's later. I'm not. You, I'm not. I'm burning less fuel doing it this way. <laughs> right. Okay. Why, why do I want to carry a full tank of fuel around? That's just excess weight. <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah. You can tell you've done some uh, research. Yeah. Research. Experiments. So you actually do fuel. You actually do fuel planning for every yeah, yeah. trip that you do, and you put do. in the right amount of fuel. Right? Yeah. That's exactly what I do, and I don't need to worry about the problems that the next story you've got right. because I'm no, firmly that, that, on the ground. That's why I was asking you. So this is a, a, a quite an interesting and worrying story, isn't it? Mm. It is, yeah. And this one's from the Alf Herald. It's um, a Viva Columbia Airbus uh, A320 Neo registration HK5378 was performing flight uh, Victor Hotel 8332 from. Cali to oh, Rio, we'll call it Rio, uh, <laughs> Colombia. Uh, it was descending towards the airport when the crew aborted the approach at about flight level 180 uh, and entered a hold for about 30 minutes. The aircraft subsequently climbed to flight level 370 uh, and was en route to divert to Medellin when the crew again needed to abort the approach to Medellin at about 15,000 feet. The aircraft climbed back to flight level 210 and the crew declared an emergency and diverted to Monterra, Columbia, Montero, I think it is. No, yeah, no. where the aircraft finally landed on runway 32 about two hours 15 after aborting the approach to uh, Rio and about three hours 20 after departing from Cali. The aircraft had about 100 kilos in its left fuel tank and about 110 kilos of fuel in its right tank. The totalizer showed 200 kilograms of fuel remaining. The airline reported the aircraft needed to abort the approach uh, to Rio due to bad weather and then diverted to uh, Medellin. While the aircraft was approaching Medellin, weather also impacted the aircraft and made a landing impossible. The crew therefore diverted where the aircraft landed safely. The aircraft had more than 180 minutes of fuel available for the 80-minute flight. Wow. 
Right. Okay. Why, don't you just, why don't you just tell us about what the the legal minima is, generally speaking? Okay. So or, really, or when you conduct a flight. The flight plan and fuel plan is based up of various elements. Uh, you've got your taxi fuel, so obviously that's the fuel that you need to taxi around the airports. Then you have the trip fuel, so that's from uh, wheels off to wheels on. Then you have contingency fuel, so add a little bit extra in. It's normally five percent, or some airlines use. Uh, statistical contingency fuel based on what's been burned on that leg, but let's call it 5%. Then you can add tankering on top of that um, if the airline wants you to take fuel there because it's cheaper to carry it. Um, and then there's extra fuel that you can decide to take. Now, in this sort of scenario here, they had an extra 100 minutes of fuel, which I think is not a bad idea, to be honest, for an 80-minute flight, if the weather's going to be that bad. Um, but something's gone there's a lot of details missing in this story obviously but something's gone badly badly wrong for them to end up with 200 kilos of fuel left that is minutes uh, in the cruise uh, and a 320 neo will burn about 38 kilos a minute uh, that's in the cruise wow yeah so at low level on approach you're looking at around you're down to like two three four minutes of fuel there if you need to put power on that's it that's all you've got. What? And the lights would have gone off pretty quickly. Just as well they were in a Neo, not a CEO. Otherwise, they <laughs> would not have made it at all, would they? Yeah, so, that, that fuel would have gone. Yeah. So what? I, I want to know Andy's take on this because so I did a little bit of math from Medellin to Monteria. They misspelled it in the article. Is about 150 miles, and then from Monteria to Rio Hacha is about 150 miles. So. These guys flew around for close to 600 miles, just diverting. But wouldn't wouldn't the weather? Wouldn't you know that the yeah. weather that far apart is? You would you would have looked at the forecasts, terrible. and you would have seen. Obviously, this weather was obviously forecast. You don't get terrible weather just out of nowhere everywhere. So if you knew that the weather was going to be bad, if I see anything like thunderstorms, that's immediately a ton. I'm taking a thousand kilos extra minimum. Um, and that'll give you 30 minutes of fuel initially, really, to play around with. But if it's like that everywhere, and also their, their diversion airfield must have had bad weather as well, which makes me think, why wasn't another diversion selected as well, a second alternate? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have absolutely filled the tanks up on that as well. A payload wouldn't have been an issue because these are really short flights. Right. You wouldn't have had, you wouldn't have been restricted on the weight that you could take, even with a full full payload of passengers and bags so until we get more details i mean can't really add much more i think that there's got to be more to this than just weather diversion so to uh, end up that bad on fuel so obviously with with uh, sort of both you and, and armando here i'm gonna i'm gonna ask us as a nervous flyer um yeah. i mean obviously this story is almost like my complete nightmare you know essentially carry you know to I mean, I read that story initially. It's like, you know, it's like basically sort of 210 kilos of, of fuel. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know how much that, that is. I don't, I, you know, it doesn't sort of mean a lot. So if 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 you were going to do 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 that flight per standard, what would you have normally had in the tanks? 300 well, I, mile flight. You'd have had at least two, around two tons. You'd, out of it expected to land with about two tons of fuel on board two tons of fuel okay two tons two thousand kilos around that 
<laughs> that sort of a minimum amount. Oh my gosh! A, right, a, a ton okay. of fuel in an A320 for your for your 30 minutes um, final reserve. That's a full midair fuel emergency. Right. And at that point, you should be trying to put it on the ground as quickly as you possibly can. Okay. So uh, again, the lowest I've ever seen in any safety reports really that I've looked at, you've landed with 600 kilos of fuel, and 600 kilos—that's bad. To land with 200 is terrifying is fresh seats in a flight deck right yeah. okay yeah burn them yeah yeah, yeah even in, even in the hawker we we always plan for landing with 2000 pounds which is you know just over 900 kilos and that's a little yeah. that's after alternates after weather after everything yeah. uh contingency planning we always have a contingency factor in there safety factor um and and in a small jet like the hawker compared to the a320 we land with with 2,000 pounds, 900 kilos. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris is saying, uh, Chris from Texas is saying that uh, hopefully the the passengers weren't aware of the fuel issue. I mean, I, I guess that kind of information would have been spared from the... Yeah, you wouldn't. I, I wouldn't tell the passengers that. No. There's no, there's no need for them to... <laughs> well, they were probably concerned from all the diverts. If you're diverting yeah. twice, yeah, and, true. you know, most people probably flown this flight already and they know that if the first... The first go around, the first divert, and then the second divert. They already know. They're probably already nervous. Yeah. So, so I mean, is this unusual to have this many diverts basically on yeah. one one flight? So, uh, is, so in I, some I, respects. I also, oh, go on. No, sorry. I'd say as well, the weather in this part of the world will be well known. I say everywhere, all pilots in the area that they mm. fly, they know what the weather's roughly going to be like at each time of the year. You know, like you get your lulls and high pressures in spring and sort of early autumn where the weather's nice then late autumn it's going to be pretty you know how we get all our storms in the autumn here in the uk mm. you've got big jet tv he's doing all the video <laughs> in february and october for, oh look at the crosswinds on that yeah so you know what what the weather's going to be like and yeah the area that you fly in what it's going to be like yeah so that's the thing i don't get as well because unless this crew is extremely inexperienced why they didn't think we need to fill this thing right up Right, because as well, all it is on a on a uh, meter for the weather, it's just a couple of letters T S. Yeah, like thunderstorms T S R A. Yeah, it looks it looks innocuous, but that can absolutely ruin no. your day. Neil's got a question in yeah. the uh, chat room. Uh, Neil says, "When would you start losing engines? Presumably, there's an unusable amount of fuel in the system." I'd say you go you would get to zero on on those tanks, but I would have. to to check that and i don't think they actually give us that information mm, in any no. of the manuals no because it's assumed that that would never happen yeah, yeah. because there's because there's so much fuel that you've obviously you've got the fuel manifold um then you've got fuel that's taken off as well to cool the idg so there's quite a bit of fuel already down system um from the pumps so i don't i don't actually know you know, it's nothing I've ever really thought about, and I don't ever. I don't ever plan to. Yes, quite no. absolutely. It was, uh, yeah. It's. I mean, it is is very much a, a worrying story here. I mean, do you think? Um, uh, do you think there's a chance that some of this perhaps could have been pressure from the airline about how much was being carried? Oh, well, you're getting into. Getting into a, a tricky area. So okay, no, that's fine. So all, yeah. all I can say is it could have been. It might not have been. Could be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so uh, Andy had a great point. So Viva Colombia only has 10 destinations internally to Colombia. They fly to Miami um, and some places in Peru and um, and Ecuador. But the these pilots would have flown these 
these 10 destinations yeah. Yeah. hundreds of times and they would know the weather you do you know mm. uh, rio acha is is coastal and and then uh, monteria is about 50 miles inland and then medellin is mountainous so you <laughs> i'm with andy on this it, you something else has to be missing because the pilots yeah. would know the weather the airline wouldn't dispatch them they wouldn't dispatch unless they were forced to um maybe they had an equipment malfunction or something maybe they you know or a leak fuel leak maybe i suppose anything no, but a leak i'd expect one side to be empty and the other side to be full right okay yeah, yeah unless you've got unless you've got a, a leak from both wing tanks right um, okay yeah. Well, I think I we'll mean, be returning to this story somehow. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we can we can wrap it up with, with Dirk's comment in the in the chat room, which is it was Colombia, so two hundred kilos in the tank. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. That's uh, yeah. I, I think. I, I mean, think... I've heard jet engines have burn on most things, but I didn't think they burn on that. <laughs> Ah, oh, right, okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe we yes. should move on before we get sued. Uh, <laughs> I think we should go to drown that quite nicely. Yes, actually. yeah, do you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's definitely well, a story to follow in the future this year. Yeah, there's, there's and I, I, I think there's going to be, a, well, once we've seen the final report, then we've mm. probably got some more uh, more info, obviously, and more accurate info too. Agreed. Yeah, yeah very much so. Uh, next one's over to Armando, and we've got some more uh, passenger difficulty in the cabin, by the looks oh, of things. Really? Every week, we just got to make a segment for this but this one's from the free press uh over in europe the a delta flight was headed to seoul um in korea it reversed its course this last monday when it returned to detroit uh, after initially with it, a customer on board that prompted police intervention the delta flight 283 took off just before midnight was only in the air for about two hours before it retained uh, returned to wayne county airport because the flight crew had an issue with what they are calling an unruly passenger, according to a Delta spokesperson. The flight reached uh, about Minnesota. It's not very far, especially when you're flying to Seoul. Uh, it was expected to last about 15 hours and had 192 passengers on board. So this confrontation with the passenger was on an Airbus A350. Uh, obviously, it's going to cause an extensive delay. Uh, and what ended up happening is it conflicted with the crew duty day. So when they returned to to Detroit, they um, they timed out, so the whole flight had to be canceled, and just a complete inconvenience by you know by this one person. Now that flight was met by law enforcement uh, professionals at the airport, according to Delta. Um, the Wayne County Airport Authority told the Free Press on Tuesday that the customer was actually experiencing a medical emergency, and that law enforcement, once everything was settled did not take any action and instead transported the passenger to a hospital. Uh, Delta Airlines declined to further uh, provide any fee any uh, details on this. Um, the request, they're kind of just gone blank, but uh, they just said, they just issued a statement saying, we apologize for the delay to our customers' travels and they're working to get everyone to their destinations as, as soon as possible. So very interesting on this one that now, and we've talked about this, where whether it's some kind of incapacitation, whether it's alcohol, you know, where is the line between just unruly behavior and a, and a legit medical uh, situation? And when the first thing that came to mind reading this was, I don't know if you guys remember, right before I left the UK, we had an individual that actually drove through the gate at RAF Mildenhall. 
and he he was chased down by the by the police. Oh yeah. He was shot at by the police. His his somehow by a stroke of luck, he ended up just taking a turn, ended up on the flight line, and the police officer that ended up using his rifle to disable the vehicle, it rolled into an Osprey. Um, but this individual was very lucky to be alive. But what pretty quick when they dragged him out of the vehicle, they realized that there was no malintent and that it was actually a, a medical situation, a behavioral health situation oh, wow. that had, you know, transpired in, in him trying to do this. And uh, neither the U.S. Air Force nor the MOD police took any action on this individual, and he was actually transported to a hospital. Lucky for him, he wasn't shot. But I think in the air, if you're if you're cabin crew and you're charged with the duty of sorting this sort of situation out, it must be very hard to differentiate between people who are either deliberately being a nuisance because they've had too much to drink or, or worse, or whether something, somebody's having a bit of a, you know, a, a, a mental um, you know, breakdown or some kind of mm -hmm. other episode like that. That must be very difficult. Uh, and it's not always obvious, I, I would imagine. Andy, have you ever experienced anything like this? Um, not, uh, I've had plenty of medicals and that seems to have all I suffered from this summer, diverting const constantly. You find, let's just call it, this one really passenger was a medical situation. It all, it all depends what information on the flight deck side that you get from behind you. Because, of course, you, you can't go out because this could be a ploy or anything to try and get you out. Um, and communication is so important because ultimately, either way, if it was a medical issue or an unruly passenger my reaction's probably going to be the same and I'm going to want them off the aircraft. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So a diversion to offload them would be inevitable. Um, I mean, I, I feel so much for people who do have these uh, episodes as to having mental health issues still aren't properly understood or accepted by society, which is a sad state of affairs, really. Um, and it could just be other passengers because from a story saying, oh, he was unruly, or he or she, sorry. Um but yeah, from from my point of view, if I'm getting the message that something's going on down the back and it, it it's a the cabin crew are having trouble controlling them or they're causing problems, then it's it, they've got to go. Yeah, I agree. And that I, I suppose again again apologies for the naivety on this one, but again I, I presume that is the the captain's prerogative if you know if you if you are unhappy to carry a carry a passenger there needs to be no further discussion about it essentially your word is final yeah yeah, yeah. the instance decision is final isn't that right quite yes. yeah absolutely which in in some respects I, I i completely understand i mean i can understand why it would be frustrating for that particular in, individual but then um you know and obviously but, you, um, if, but also if there is a med if there is a medical hmm. situation going on i suppose you could argue that it that it could potentially not be safe for them to, to to remain on the airline on the aircraft as well you know the, because they need medical assistance yes yeah the, the only time this has happened to, to me i had a passenger that had a uh, an anxiety attack on the aircraft um, i had just left pittsburgh and uh, i was on, on the way to baltimore and uh, we diverted. We diverted into a, a small town, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And uh, <laughs> once we landed, he wanted to get back on the airplane. And he said, no, no, I'm fine. 
And we said, no, you're not fine. You're going to get in that ambulance. But, you know, as the captain, this is another good point, right? Like your your sphere of influence and authority ends at, at sort of the wingtip, you know? Yeah. Then it's up to the gate agents and, and the company to, once he's off, once they are off your airplane, that's for law enforcement and medical professionals. And we we very quickly just said, no, you're not coming back on board. Um, now that in, that introduced, and this is a good good Andy point, where you divert. For us, it introduced a, a, a another challenge in that Johnstown was not a TSA secure airport. So we were going from, from a TSA terminal, Pittsburgh, to TSA terminal in Baltimore. We diverted to a non-TSA airport. So once we landed in Baltimore, everyone had to get off, get uh, rescreened. Oh, wow. So they got on a bus with their luggage and everything, rescreened. So all of those individuals lost their flights and connections and everything. But it, it just... It, it, one thing just introduces more and more challenges. So, so forgive, forgive um, my naive. Ned probably knows this, yeah. but I, I don't. But you don't have to apologise, Matt. This is why we do the podcast. <laughs> it's just the, so why? What, first of all, what is the TSA? I know I, I've heard it. Obviously, I know like Dr. Steph mentioned it. You've mentioned it. All that kind of thing. What what is TSA? Uh, TSA and why does it matter that if you go to a non-TSA airport? that you then have to literally do all that kind of screening why is that a what why is that a like a like a disaster almost um because presumably you know as long as they they haven't been lost if you like within the the airport why why do they have to then yet be re-screened i mean as long as they haven't left departures yeah well so it's similar to to over there if you were making a connection let's say you come in from uh, from edinburgh you fly into Heathrow and then you're connecting over to, I don't know, pick up uh, another airport in the UK. And you're the, the entire time you were screened in Edinburgh. You've mm-hmm. stayed within a within the screened area at Heathrow or your connection airport. So you're always sort of controlled. And then even at your arrival airport, you, you are in a secure area until you exit through all the little red signs. Right. And at that point, you know that's why all the little the little red hands are there, and they say if you go any further, you will have to go back through security. For us, or for anyone that diverts to a non TSA airport, if you keep them on the airplane, you could argue that they were under your control mm. the entire time. But you all, we also we had a rule: we cannot refuel with people on board. We had to deplane them to refuel. Right. Um, so, in that case, now they are. This this is an open airport. Does not here in America these small airports. You're lucky if they have a fence. Oh, it, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, unlike unlike uh, the UK or Europe, these municipal airports are are completely not secure at all. There's no police presence. There's no fences. There's no anything. Um, so you you can literally drive from your car from your house right onto the ramp if you wanted to and. And in this particular scenario, that's what happened. And right. now, now, the major airlines or the regional airlines, when they divert, they're going to talk to their company and their company is going to tell them, because here's another thing. You need to divert somewhere where you have the ground equipment and you have an agreement with someone. So, you know, whatever airline that you fly for, Andy, the uh, Acme Orange, the, um, you know, you have to land somewhere where 
where the ground support person or a third party is going to be able to to handle the airplane and, and, and deal with your needs, right? Well, I diverted earlier this summer to Vienna thinking it was a place that we still flew to. And we didn't. Ah. <laughs> so that, right. took a, that took a bit of time to sort out. Uh, but who I work for generally just let us get on with it. Because as well in Europe, most of the airfields that we fly, yeah. Yeah. it can take us and we probably fly there already. And unless we really, really, really need to put it on the ground super, super quick, mm. then we'll, we don't really need to consult with um, operations because we will end up in an airfield <laughs> that can give us something. Hmm. Okay, but yeah, that that I felt a bit silly after that. <laughs> yes. That outdated uh, route map uh, that was in the seat back <laughs> pocket in the cockpit. <laughs> ah. okay, it, it was in the it was in the box. I thought, all right, we'll go. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, an airline, uh, an aircraft that you can't put into anywhere is an A three eighty, of course. Um, and our good friend Michelle in uh, on turning left for less has been talking about some uh, new or revised routes that uh, British Airways are flying the A380 to, uh, which um, starting from the 26th of March uh, until the 28th of October 2023, next year. Um, so now we've got, uh, I think, nearly all of the A380s back uh, at Heathrow. Uh, they're going to be running a uh, Boston one daily, Chicago O'Hare one daily, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, one daily, uh, three times a week to Dubai, twice daily to Johannesburg, uh, seven times uh, a week to Miami uh, with selected weeks in April and May. Uh, there's going to be 10 weekly, one to San Francisco and one to Washington, Dallas. Um, so that's that's some good news. I'm hopefully going on the uh, A380 to DFW uh, in um uh, I think it's January or February next year. Um, so it'll be the first time I've actually been on a flying oh, A380. Wow. I've been on two that have been stationary on the ground before, but never, uh, never uh, up in the air. So I'm now, and I know we've things. I know we've covered stories in the past, haven't we? About how it's almost like the A380 sort of arrived to the party a bit late, didn't it? Because it, it you know, it was sort of it arrived essentially when the four engine thing was sort of not a thing anymore, and. Yeah, I think I know it's trying to rewrite history here, but if the aircraft had been designed and built, I don't know, five years before, Mm. perhaps, it might have been a different story. I'd be interested to know if you're operating an A380, what the minimum uh, load factor is to make the whole thing work commercially. It it must be quite high, I would imagine. You know, they've, they've got to fill as many seats as they possibly can and have cargo on board as well i would imagine to, to make it uh, viable because you don't want to start uh, running that kind of aircraft half empty yeah i don't I, yeah i don't know I, I i don't i don't know the the answer to that it's uh, it, I, I know it's one of those sort of um marmite aircraft isn't it uh, quite often uh, where cabin crew uh, absolutely hate it but from a passenger perspective usually the passengers quite quite like it yeah um i mean i guess with any airline there must be that that tolerance isn't there it's like you know you need to have it needs to be at least half full otherwise it's not make you know it's not covering its costs you know well, some, like sometimes i mean uh, airlines if they've got two uh flights that are going fairly close together but they're they're both 
not very full. I mean, they have been known to combine flights right one but of course with the a380 that's not really possible to do that because no. there's only i think british airways have only got 12 aircraft so mm. you know you're then starting to eat into the the other fleet i would imagine uh, but um well it's anyway i think it's great to see that it's flying again yeah. and there's some more routes planned for next year yeah i uh, think i think it's great uh, have um armando and and andy have you had any experience on the 380 just a high fly one that was parked there at uh, Farnborough. At Farnborough, yeah, that's right. It was. I've never flown in one. I've had yeah. several flights of a three eighty. Have you? Oh, so how? As I say, I know that I know that cabin crew. As I say, one of my friends is uh, cabin crew and uh, flies that flies that not very regularly to their delight um and i mean their, their complaints are things like the galley is completely not fit for purpose and, mm. and things like that but in terms of um like the the passenger experience i mean how did how did you find it i've flown it in economy and i've flown it in business oh hello <laughs> on uh emirates and it, a long way as well i've been all the way down to uh auckland and back in one wow when uh that was when i was doing my flight training and in economy, yes, it's a lovely, quiet aeroplane, but business, oh, Emirates business is just delightful. Mm. Very nice. Different um, world, yeah. Yeah, we did it, the last time I did it was um, to Sri Lanka in October mm. 2018. Yeah, we took our four-month-old daughter to, uh, to Sri Lanka for a few days for some cricket, and it was lovely, really nice. So, I mean, okay, well, let's stick with the... Um the Emirates model then? I mean, have you done anything in the 777 sort of along those lines like economy or has it always been the 380 for you so far? Uh, no, yeah, I've been in uh, 777 economy and 777 business as well. And so how did they compare? I mean, was it essentially the same uh, sort of experience almost or, or you know, we, we Emirates, did one have the edge? The Emirates business at. class on the 380 is a bit packed in, if you right. ask me. Okay. Whereas on the 777, it seems to be, it's a bit more airy and more room. Okay. Interesting. I just need to pick you up on one thing, Andy. You said that you took your young daughter to Sri Lanka to see the cricket. Yes. I think you yes, wanted sir. to see the cricket, and she just happened to come along with you. Did she come along with the story? right? Yes. yes, she didn't have much of a choice. No. no. How old was she, just out of interest? Uh, four months old. Right, yeah. okay. Oh, wow. She wasn't it. able to name the team no, or the rules no. of the game. Nothing. I mean, she's getting quite good now. She had a photo taken with a lot of the first team because they were staying in our hotel. She loved it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Wood still remembers her. No, very good. Okay, that's what that's what we like to hear. Uh, well, I, I mean, I you know, I, I've yet to sort of, uh, I've yet to experience it, but I, I hope I get to try one before they all come out of service and things. But it's good to, I mean, bearing in mind, I remember sort of in the in the lead up and during lockdown, Nev. I mean, we were talking about, you know, especially the BA three uh, eighties not flying again at one point. So to sort of hear them back out yeah. and you know in the air and 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 that, I, I think is is great news for aviation yeah well they're I all think. being stored stored at madrid or most of them are being mm. stored at, M M at madrid because there was no uh capacity to, yeah. to, uh, and also because of the better weather in madrid as well so you know less chance of corrosion of the airframe mm. and that kind of thing i would imagine uh but uh matt on this particular story uh qantas is actually swapping out the a380 for the Dreamliner on some Oh, planes. right. Yes, okay. I have to say, these segues are beautiful tonight. Really good. <laughs> this, this show was just not thrown together, you know. 
there's proper production involved here. But my goodness me. Creme de la creme to make the production. Of course, absolutely. Sorry. One would expect nothing nothing lesser. Uh, Nev did the show notes. Uh, that's that's uh, what Just did. wait till we get to the military where we just drop 250-pound bombs on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I segue everything with acronyms so you guys can't keep Excellent. up. Excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, good. Yeah, duly noted. Can't wait. Uh, right, so simpleflying.com is the website. And the headline is Qantas swaps the A380, as Nev said, for the Boeing 787 on Melbourne uh, to Los Los Angeles flight. Uh, passengers booked in first-class seats on Qantas Melbourne to Los Angeles A380s are now in business class on the 787 and not and are not at all happy about it. I can well imagine. It seems that the return of the A380 to Australia's skies is losing its appeal to Qantas, much to the annoyance of those who want a truly first-class experience and live in Melbourne. As reported by Executive Traveller, recent updates to Qantas flight schedules show that the planned A380 rollout on flights from Melbourne to Los Angeles has been abandoned. Initially a uh, little concern uh, for uh, passengers however for those looking for the memorable a- Airbus A380 whoa my machine's just gone completely bananas uh, <laughs> it's just jumped massively and I've lost my place. One moment caller please hold as reported by Executive Traveller, recent updates to the Qantas flight schedules show the planned Airbus A380 rollout on flights from Melbourne to Los Angeles has been abandoned. Initially scheduled for late March, the A380 has been replaced by the Boeing 787-9, which is probably of little concern for most passengers. However, those looking for the memorable Airbus A380 first-class cabin and upper deck premium lounge, uh, the switch to the Dreamliner is not going to go down well at all. Qantas is spending heavily to return the A380, so cutting back their schedule seems counterintuitive. To find out what's behind the change, Simple Flying reached out to Qantas, who told us that it's part of their um, uh, Australian dollar 200 million. Uh, that's 125.4 million US dollars investing for our customers' program. In this market update last week, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce spoke about providing a buffer against unexpected challenges that could disrupt services and passengers. Qantas said it would reduce capacity and place aircraft on standby to plug gaps if and when they arise. Today, the spokesperson told Simple Flying this change in capacity, that is, the switch from the A380 to the 787-9 is part of the strategy to protect the integrity of schedules and give uh, certainty to operations. Qantas is leaving around 20% of its flying capacity in reserve and ready to be brought uh, in to reduce cancellations and delays. This means up to 20 aircraft, including 10 narrow bodies, six wide bodies and four regional aircraft will be on standby across Qantas and Jetstar networks. This is a temporary measure as the operation and as operational capacity, operational certainty, sorry, increases, the reserve capacity will be added back into everyday operations. I mean, I, I spoke reserve capacity, isn't there? There is a lot 20, of reserve. Twenty capacity. aircraft. Gosh, it does seem like. I mean, well, I don't. I mean, how does that compare to uh, the amount of aircraft they have across their network, though? I mean, I, I guess. Well, I, I don't know, but I mean, that's you know, aircraft on the mm. ground is a very expensive 
thing to do, isn't it? Uh, if for just reserve situations, bearing in mind that they're you know they're all sort of back and flying now after mm. after COVID. I mean, there are some you know routes which are still troublesome. Some mm. of those ones into China, for example. Um, but that's a really expensive um, proposition, isn't it? If you think about it, you know. Uh, I and also the crews as well that would be flying those aircraft. I guess. I guess the the Is, the decision behind it. I mean, I guess it's easier to pop an A380 aircraft on one that's been run by a 787 in terms of of capacity. If you sort, I mean, it's easier to do it that way around, obviously, mm. than if you have an A380 that either goes tech or ends up in the wrong place or something like that. You've then got a problem of a you know a significant number of passengers who've been inconvenienced as a result. So, I mean, if, if in some respects, I get it. It's not the end of the world, really, because, I mean, the Dreamline's a pretty nice aircraft. So, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. If you were told that they're not operating the 380, but you're going to be on a, on a 787-9, that's not not a disaster, is it, really? Unless you're in, uh, unless you've booked a, and spent the money for first, of course. Which, uh, well, I'm, which is I'm, the sure, issue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there'd be negotiations with the company. I dare say is this an quite... attempt to save money on fuel? Could be. It could be, couldn't it, mm. if you think about it? Uh, two engines, uh, uh, you know, better than four in those situations. Yeah, yeah. And the Definitely. the cost of fuel at the moment is skyrocketing. Yeah, mm. depending yeah. how much fuel you have hedged, etc. It mm-hmm. could just be a way to offset that for a while. Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of saving fuel, uh, Jet Two dot com, traditionally a seven three seven and seven five seven operator, um, have got some new aircraft on the way. Ooh. And, yes, they have. And uh, hang on, I've just clicked off where it should be. Uh, Jet2 increases order for the A320neo family to 98. So Jet2.com has placed an incremental order for 35 A320neo aircraft, taking its total commitment to the family uh, to 98 aircraft. The latest agreement comes just over a year since Jet2 placed its first order for 36 A321neos in August 21, followed by further commitments thereby securing its growth needs as demand continues used to outplay supply. The A320neos will be configured for 180 seats with an airspace cabin featuring innovative lighting, new seating products and 60% large overhead bins for added personal storage. The 320neo family incorporates uh, new generation engines and sharklets which together deliver more than 20% fuel and CO2 savings as well as a 50% noise reduction. Passengers are benefiting throughout the trip from Airbus's award-winning airspace interior, which brings the latest cabin technology to the A330 family. By the end of September 2022, the A320neo family has accumulated over 8,500 firm orders from more than 130 customers worldwide. Wow. I mean, that's quite a coup for Airbus, isn't it, Andy? You know, it is. Uh, switching the, the whole airline out. Uh, I don't know whether they're going to keep their 7.3s and their 7.5s, but even so, this is an addition to them, at least, isn't it? Yeah, well, I believe the 7.5s are slowly on their way out. At Manchester, I still get the joy of seeing them every day, and I love that mm. simple spool RB211. You can't miss that noise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what, what are they supposed to replace the 7.5.7s with? The only product really available is the 21. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boeing don't offer anything else at the moment. Mm. And, of course, Jet2 do offer those uh, longer routes, don't they? You know, Sharm el-Sheikh and, and down to the Canaries and, and a few other ones. So those uh, those aircraft are nicely suited for the longer routes too, aren't they? I would, I would imagine in terms of fuel burn and also, you know, passenger comfort as well. Oh, yeah, big difference between um, the 737 and the... Uh, 737 NG and the um, 
the Neo engines, huge. I mean, mm. the CE or 320 engines, they're a variant of the CFM56 that's on the NG, slightly older than the NG, and the fuel burn difference is massive between the types. So, yeah, it's a good way to save money. It's a much wider and bigger cabin as well in the 737. But, yeah, it's it's good because it's, it's keeping keeping them competitive. Mm. And actually, if you think about it, uh, we're talking about timing of aircraft production and this sort of thing. It's just as well that the the Neo aircraft and, and you know, uh, uh, aircraft from other manufacturers as well are, are now so much more fuel efficient than they ever were because of the, the cost of fuel is just sky high, isn't it? Yeah, and they haven't had the issues that the Max has had as well, which has mm. uh, made a big difference. Well, we could segue quite nicely onto that story, couldn't we? Oh. Uh, uh, because Armando is going to tell us about the latest situation with the uh, MAX certification from Boeing. Yeah, we've talked about all the things individually. Now we're just going to put them together. So Bo Boeing, uh, just this week, won a little bit of support from uh, a Republican senator, as well as a major customer in its bid to convince the U U.S. Congress to extend the deadline to win certification for the new uh, the two new 737 MAX variants, they are currently facing a late December deadline for the FAA to certify the MAX 7 and the MAX 10. After that date, all planes are, are required to have a modern cockpit alerting system, which they currently don't have, uh, in order to be certified by the FAA. Obviously, if they, extend, if they go past that deadline, that could mean significant delays for the new MAX aircraft deployment um, unless Congress grants a waiver to the extend this deadline. Uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham told Reuters that he supports attaching a max deadline waiver to some kind of spending bill for another measure before Congress. I think that's a weird thing that we do. You can't just introduce legislation. You have to attach it to something. Um, and uh, the senator said that they're going to fight as hard as we can to get Boeing the opportunity to prove that the airplane works and that it does work. Now, the requirements were approved by Congress in late 2020 as part of the FAA certification reforms after those two 737 MAX crashes. Um, earlier this last Wednesday, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby also backed the extension, making uh, saying that it makes sense to have a common 737 alerting system uh, he said it's it's uh, the right safety out outcome and that changing the cockpit is a bad safety outcome. Uh, United in 2017 ordered 100 MAX 10s. Uh, without an extension, United would convert some of those orders to MAX 8s and 9s. <clears throat> and according to their CEO, like we're just talking about, they're going to buy more Airbus A321 aircraft, <clears throat> which would obviously impact Boeing pretty significantly isn't it interesting how the the tone of this piece from reuters is now talking about a lot more government involvement compared to just the faa and the certification authorities yeah i think this was you know we talked about these these crashes and and how not just social media but the media really latched onto there there have been plenty of aircraft in history that had problems but this particular scenario and these two crashes well 
while it is an incredible loss of life, um, were latched onto by the media in a way that I hadn't seen before, at least not in my, you know, 20 something years of flying. And, um, and that forced uh, representatives in the US government to do something in the name, whatever you believe, in the name of their constituents for safety. I don't know that the US Congress regularly gets involved in the certification of aircraft. Um, I think this is a pretty unique situation. They painted themselves in a corner <laughs> by introducing this legislation and getting involved. And now they're stuck with it. And uh, here in the US, a lot of your congressional decisions are made by, you know, how much is it going to benefit your constituency? So now they're they're potentially by rules that they made a couple of years ago in response to the crashes are going to actually hurt their districts um, by, you know, Boeing potentially losing jobs, airlines cutting jobs and business going to Airbus. So mm -hmm. I think it was a, a very unique situation in that the government got involved in this. Oh, man, here, sorry. Here we are. Is this essentially about fitting a proper ICAS system? Yeah, I think the, 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 the you know, the, we had the MCAS that, that was installed on there and that, you know, was it the cause of the problems? Yes, it was, but it, there was um, debate over that too, you know, whether the training was really the problem. And then the, and then the cockpit alerting system, the ICAS is different. And, and they're basically just stuck saying, you can certify it, because with the current system up to this the end of this year otherwise you guys are going to have to replace the whole the whole icast system and and that whole uh, so, essentially ICAST system here uh, and i agree with them i think it does need replacing it's a it's a 707 alerting system essentially the two panels on the on either side of the glare shield and having to look and see what systems the pro it's just it's not a modern system well, and that was kind of the problem with the whole airplane, wasn't it? Yeah. The, I the, mean, they've just engineered it and engineered it. I mean, I think they've done a great job of engineering it to the point they've got it to, that it's still flying. But now's the time to give up, surely. I don't... The, they can't. They don't have any clean sheet designs. They, <laughs> if they oh, give up, they that's lose. That's problem. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> is Boeing's problem. They should have seen it coming, but... And, you know, Micah's making some great points in the chat room, too. These are... They're just relying on these systems from 757, 767s, 707s. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, while Airbus has been on the cutting edge of innovation. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm not saying that as an Airbus fan, but I, mean, I love the 75, the 76, the, one of my favorite. I wish I always wanted to fly the 75. But safety is more I mean, important than anything else, than profits and everything. And if you, if you don't produce a safe aircraft, as they've seen, then, you know, it's going to harm you anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. And and the spotlight is really on them, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's have a look at another uh, manufacturer, uh, one we don't talk about that often, um, the Embraer series. And uh, Chewy, this is on the uh, EmbraerCommercialAviation.com website, uh, it says that uh, Chewy Group has selected Embraer's E195-E2, the quietest and most efficient aircraft under 150 seats to join the Tui Fly Belgium fleet 
TUI is one of the world's leading uh, tourism groups and will take delivery of three of these aircraft from AirCap on long-term lease. Uh, the aircraft from AirCap's existing fleet and powered by Pratt & Whitney GTF engines will be delivered in a comfortable 136-seat single-class configuration in the first half of 2023. Uh, we are thrilled to add that the uh, the E195-E212 Belgium fleet, operating on short and medium haul routes, the new aircraft is the most efficient one in the market. It uses less fuel, has a longer range, whilst at the same time is 50% quieter and emits up to a third less carbon dioxide. The airplanes will operate mostly out of Antwerp, where they'll be flying to more distant airports, which will allow us to expand into new holiday destinations from northern Belgium, uh, said Marco Chomperlik, uh, who's the chief airline officer of TUI. Uh, the selection of the E195-E2 is an important milestone to make TUI's fleet even more efficient in support of our sustainability goals. Working together with Aircap, Embraer and Pratt & Whitney, we have agreed on an attractive package that enables TUI to provide travellers from regional airports in Belgium an even better start to their holidays, added Tom Chandler, who's Managing Director, Fleet and Asset Management of TUI Group. We're very pleased to announce the lease placement of three of these aircraft with TUI. Aircap has a long history of working with the company and we are excited to be a part of their fleet renewal plan, said Peter Anderson, Chief Commercial Officer of Aircap. Uh, these aircraft are the perfect fit to support TUI's operations with greater versatility and improved efficiencies, enabling them to meet their sustainability commitments. We wish TUI every success with the E2 jets and we look forward to working with them as these aircraft deliver. Martin Holmes, who's Chief Commercial Officer of Embraer Commercial Aviation, added, we welcome Chewy, uh, already operators of the first generation E190 to the E2 family of operators. Uh, the economics of the uh, Dash E2 combined with its comfort is a win-win for Chewy, allowing the operator to increase capacity and delight their guests while still reducing fuel costs and lowering emissions. We're pleased to continue our long relationship with Chewy and thank Aircap for their partnership. Well, I've not been on a 195 yet, but I've been on a lot of the uh, 190s uh, out of uh, London City Airport recently with the BA City Flyer. And I must say, I really like those aircraft. They're really nice regional jets. And actually, they can go quite long distances as well. So it's perfectly comfortable on a slightly medium haul route too, I would say. Um, yeah. so that's, uh, have you been on a Embraer before, uh, Andy? Yeah, yeah, I've been on your City Flyer ones up yeah. between City and um, Edinburgh when I used to live in Canary Wharf. Uh, yeah, really comfy, nice, nice and quiet. Wasn't was it Steve Jordan who was whinging about them on Twitter the other day? <laughs> Did you see the rant that you had? They got the Embraer. Um, was it CEO or somebody involved, and he decided to delete it because he was seeing how terrible he thought they were oh, flying. No. <laughs> but as a passenger, very nice. Oh, I quite like him. Mm. And he had the audacity to complain about the um, control column oh. when it was pointed out to him that that was the same as Concorde. He soon uh, backed down. Right. I was going to yeah. say the the, the ram the, the, the ram horn. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the leg room's good. Headroom's good. I think yeah. as well. Nice. Yeah, I used to jump seat um, when I was Pittsburgh based. I used to jump seat on uh, on the E one nineties, E one ninety fives, and it's an amazing airplane. Actually, I think Andy, you would love it from up front. It's very, very similar to an Airbus, and yeah. uh, flies great. I mean, I watched those guys, you know, those crews, and and it's for a regional airliner. 
you you almost feel like you don't need to move up to a bigger airplane because they're pretty they're pretty darn big yeah um you know for a regional they're they're they stand tall and they behave and they have the, all the same systems as a as a, a you know a bigger airliner really really nice airplanes from the front too I must say, going off of uh, London City Airport, Andy, um, holding the uh, thrust against the brakes before they, mm. before they do uh, release them, it goes off the runway like a scalded cat, I would imagine. It does, doesn't it? A friend uh, of mine used to fly them for um, Fly B, and he's now a tape rating instructor on them as well. Maybe I should get a tape rating on it, get that on my licence. Yeah. For fun. <laughs> well, Bron just, to try and keep up, just trying to keep up with Armando. I mean, he's got so many tight ratings, you know. Yeah. No one can keep up with him anymore. You know, so. It's an amazing uh, number. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we always say that uh, general aviation is, you know, quite expensive here in the UK and a lot of rules and regulations. But uh, this story seems to go some way towards some simplification, Andy. Yeah, well, the, the UK Civil Aviation Authority launches consultation on the simplification and rationalisation of general aviation pilot licences. So the uh, the CA has today, this was on the 18th of October, proposed a simpler process to gain a pilot licence and training for the general aviation community. Uh, draft proposals published in CAP, which stands for Civil Aviation Publication 2335, uh, phase one, strategy direction, include creating a single set of private pilot licenses, so PPL, for aeroplanes and helicopters that comply with uh, international civil aviation organization standards, that's ICAO standards. Other draft proposals include creating another single set of aeroplane and helicopter pilot licenses that do not comply with international standard. Such sub-licenses are designed for flight in UK airspace only and subject to certain limitations, which would make it easier for potential pilots to gain a licence. Better integration... Uh, sorry, better integrate the syllabuses of the sub-ICAO licence with the internationally recognised PPL to allow holders to progress more easily from one to the other. And the sub-ICAO licence could use operational limitations borrowed from the current microlight aeroplane community and allow ways for holders to progressively remove those limitations as well as the sub-ICAO status. Uh, they want to develop an approach for sailplanes and balloons. I still don't believe you need a license for balloon. It flies you. Including a license for commercial passenger carrying balloon operations, which is significant element of UK, sorry, which are a significant element of UK ballooning. Uh, develop how existing licenses are maintained and kept valid under any new system the CAA creates while minimizing undue disruption and costs on users, flying schools, and uh, themselves. So a working group has been established with key community experts, including uh, general aviation associations, uh, as well as flying instructors and PPL students. And uh, Michael McDonald, co-head of the CAA's General Aviation and uh, RPAS unit said, uh, this project is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to simplify, rationalise and re-examine the GA licence regime. We've worked closely with and listened to the GA community and thank them for their continued involvement. We also want to continue to hear their views so that we get this right. We would encourage everyone with an interest in GA to get involved and participate in this consultation. Uh, this project will take some time to work through and we anticipate the need to have a series of consultations and we hope this will help make the licensing and training process simpler for all, all flyers. A collaborative approach was taken to ensure we fairly reflected views from the wider GA community and we established a working group of key GA community experts including GA associations. Yep, I've already said that bit and want to thank them all for their continued support on this project. 
I think it's good. I think Always worries me when there's a, a long press release to talk about simplification. But yeah. um, <laughs> do you think this is a, a move in the right direction, Andy? Yeah, because what did we have? We used to have the national license, uh, a PPL license, the LAPL license, got the Microlite licenses, you got the balloon licenses. Um, if they can streamline it all and make it easier to jump from one to the other and get costs down and get more people flying in these subcategories, why not? I think it's a great idea. Now, Armando, presumably you don't have any of this in the US. It's a far simpler system anyway, oh. isn't it, for the most part? No, actually it's uh, pretty similar. We have okay. uh, we have your private pilot certificate, but almost underneath that, and this was an effort a few years ago to get more people into, into aviation as well as keeping people in aviation longer um, with reduced... Uh, medical standards and reduced training. We have a sport license. We have a recreational pilot. Um, we instituted our light uh, sport aircraft category way, way, way after you guys did in, in Europe. EASA had it for a long, long time, and the CAA had it for a long, long time. I think the U.S. saw that and said, "Hey, we need to we need to create something like that," and that's how light sport came about. Um, but no, we, we have a similar thing now where you can, you know, essentially go get a recreational pilot license and it just restricts you on, on the, the weather and the type of airplanes that you can do, you know, um, or you can get a sport pilot certificate and little differences here. I was actually going to ask what the difference is between what they're proposing and, and, the, and the LAPL. It's, it sounded pretty similar to me. Yeah. Uh, or, or is the LAPL also an ICAO? I, I think the LAPL was an EASA thing. Um, basically, you just needed the same medical as a heavy goods vehicle driver. Um, yeah. So it wasn't as stringent, but then, of course, there was a lot less you could do with it and and fly with it. It was, I'd always call it a light PPL personally, but it gave people who couldn't get a class two the opportunity to go flying, which is great. Yeah, we have over here what's called basic med which it, if at any point you have been issued any point in your life you've been issued a third class medical or any medical um you can essentially keep flying with a with just a driver's license regular driver's license yeah so they got dirk says uh lapl is so obviously now we're out of that sadly in oh, so that so rebrand so, the lapl yeah rebrand it and realign it uh yeah that sounds like um Corporate speak that. <laughs> <laughs> that would never do. Well, no, perish the thought. Well, that was a really interesting uh, roundup of the commercial aviation, I think. Uh, thanks, guys, for your superb input, as always. Uh, next up, it's uh, part five of the Chris Burwell interview. Chris has written the book called Nine Lives, uh, and uh, Nick very kindly did the interview uh, for us. And uh, we've put this into a uh, six-part series. So this is the penultimate part of it. And, uh, again, fascinating to listen to Chris uh, of his time in the RAF. And here he is talking to Nick again. Now, I'm sure your promotion to group captain was very welcome. But I expect that the extension of your tour to mm. take in air operations over Iraq in 93 must have left you slightly with mixed feelings. The mission you flew over the Iraqi SAM site left us 
on mm. a knife edge. I really enjoyed mm. your description of that in the book. In the event, was it all fairly quiet? Yes, it was. There was, as you say, there was the same same launch when I was out there, but otherwise it tended to be pretty quiet. But of course, every time you flew, you were very well aware that you were going into the Badlands because you go and visit the intelligence officer and our army major who give us give you a full briefing before you went about what SAM sites we knew about and uh, they take you through on the map you'd look at your route and see where those SAM rings uh, where you were going to be vulnerable uh, we always flew as pairs we wouldn't go singleton so you had mutual support uh, so it was, it, was, it was an interesting time and uh, we flew as constituted pairs while we were out there and so we, you just got into a nice routine. I had my American exchange officer actually um, flying with me, Joe Andrews, who is very, very competent, very steady sort of guy to have with me. So that was, that was good. Yeah, the American exchange officers had their fair share of problems uh, in, yeah. uh, in the United Kingdom, I, I do remember. but. He obviously was one of the good ones. Yes. Yeah. Um, your book is delightfully peppered with amusing anecdotes, but the story of your Harrier with a flat battery struck me as a particularly good one. Could you perhaps <laughs> tell the uh, listeners yeah. about that? Well, yeah, shortly before I left the squadron, we, uh, we took four aircraft down to uh, a Spanish naval base just near Madrid. Um, and it was, it's called a Ranger, so it's a navigational exercise, but it gives you the opportunity to take the aircraft away. It is useful because you have to flight plan it. Uh, it also provides the Spanish Navy with the opportunity to get used to your aircraft, so NATO interoperability. So they have to refuel it and help you support the aircraft while you're away from home. Uh, but also, of course, if you go on a Friday and you can't come back till the Monday, it gives you the opportunity for a weekend in Madrid, you know, so... The selection of the crews, it was my swan song off the squadron, um, but it came about that we decided to go down to Madrid because one of my junior pilots, a guy called Chris Norton, very, very capable guy, he had a very good friend down in, in Madrid, um, a young lady, and there was nothing going on between them. He was happily married, but he knew this uh, young lady, but he said, well, if we go to Madrid, boss, you know, she'll look after us and take us to all the right places to go and see. And so I was like, right, okay, snorts, right, we'll go to Madrid. So a couple of my flight commanders jumped on the bandwagon. So we had a four-ship myself, uh, my car with Jerry Humphreys and Snorts, Chris Norton. So we went off down to Madrid, everything went fine. We landed in, in Spain, sorted the aircraft out, got them refueled and went off for a weekend. Had a wonderful weekend in Madrid because this young lady who, who showed us all the great places to go to in Madrid came into work on the Monday morning and my car would had left the refueling panel of his aircraft open. Now, if you... I, I know Mike. Yeah. <laughs> if you, I shouldn't have mentioned the name. I've dropped him in it now. But if you leave the refuelling panel open on the GR7, then it powers up the refuelling circuits, which don't take a lot of power, but over a weekend, they're going to drain the battery. And that's exactly what happened. So Mike got there and oh, battery's dead, boss. That's great. Okay, so we're not right. We've got a, a sick jet. So... Uh, 
what should we do? So we then sort of went, who's doing what? So Mike said, well, I've got to get back because I've got this very famous um, World War II guy, Air Force pilot, visiting me tonight at Wittering. So, right, okay, so you bust the jet, but you're going to take one of our serviceable <laughs> aircraft and go off home. Great, thanks, Mike. And then Jerry Humphreys says, well, actually, boss, my wife's about to have a baby, so I really do need to get back. So, okay, you, like ta you take another one. Yeah, yeah. So it finished up with the boss and the junior pilot having to sort the shambles out. So anyway, um, we right, what do we do? So we, we asked the Spanish, they had absolutely no ideas at all. It's great NATO interoperability. And so I've, I've, you know, I just thought about it and thought, well, what we could do, because we had an, an auxiliary power unit, we could fire up the APU on uh, the aircraft that's got the good battery. Then we could get the battery out, put it into the other aircraft, fire that APU up, and then we've got power to both aircraft and then the dead battery will charge up from the APU and all this sort of thing. So I phoned up the squadron and said, hey guys, what do you think about this? And they went, yeah, okay, boss, you know, sounds all right to us, go for it. So we finished up the APU, you know, APUs are incredibly noisy things. And uh, so we finished up the APU running and it's deafening noise. So you finish up up the back hatch, which is very close to where the APU is, pulling out a battery and then staggering across and getting it into the other aircraft and then firing the APU up on that one. And eventually we got both APUs up and running, we got both engines started, and we eventually got airborne and got back to Wittering. Oh, brilliant. I love that story. Yeah. Now, taking over RAF Scampton as the station commander was, as you remind us, moving to a historically important airfield. Um, did that involve you in any interesting events? We had a number of interesting events, particularly to do with the closure of the station, sadly, because I found out shortly before I was taking over, I was actually at Scampton doing some workup training before I'd taken command. I, was, um, I think I was doing the Bulldog uh, com Competent to Instruct course at the time. The CNC, uh, Sir Christopher Coville, arrived and he took me to one side and said, we think the station's going to close, but we've decided you're going to stay on and you're going to stay here you will take over the station but it may be a short tour so just to warn you so I, I, I could see that was coming up so it was only a few months into my tour that I found out the station was going to close as an aside interestingly enough of course it never has closed it's continued to operate the Red Arrows were moved down to Cranwell then they've moved back to Scampton all this sort of thing uh, it, and it went on for years and Scampton is still operating um, even today <laughs> So we never actually closed RAF Skempton down, but I was the man that was responsible for closing the station down. So we did have a number of um, farewells to RAF Skempton, uh, which, which was great. We had, um, we had a big dinner night for a lot of um, notable people who'd been associated with Skempton and um, important people in the local area like the Mayor of Lincoln and, and so on. And, and so that, that was one big dinner night we had. Uh, we also had a closed down hangar party where we had about 800 people in the hangar for the night. We had the Red Arrows display, we had the Battle of Britain, uh, Lancaster come in. The uh, station commander's fund must have been shrinking. Oh, uh, well, we, you know, I had a very good uh, OC admin wing, a guy called Dave Gardner, who sadly is no longer with us, but uh, Dave Gardner uh, did a great job of some finding money for various things and uh, we, 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 had, we, we did, I think we did Scampton Proud and uh, saw it off work very well at that yeah, time. Absolutely. 
Now, despite attending two of the best courses available for those hoping to reach very mm. senior ranks, mm. uh, your tourist group captain plans didn't seem to go well and mm. led you to decide to retire prematurely, mm. even when the Air Secretary offered you an, uh, an olive branch. and yeah. You left without finding out what that job would have entailed. Do mm. you ever regret that? I do think about it. Um, I don't regret it because my life took an interesting turn thereafter, or to, in work sense, two very interesting turns. Um, I think it's military is interesting because if you're in a position like I was, and I was 46 years old at the time, I was nine years away from taking a full pension. I think it's quite an attractive thing, especially if you're the group captain one star level, you can say, well, I'll just do, get my head down, do the last nine years and walk, walk out with quite a nice pension. Yeah. I didn't want to do that because I thought there's more to life than just turning the handle, doing jobs that I might or might not be interested in. And I could see that there were jobs that I would have been very happy to do at the one star level and almost certainly at the two star level as well. But I wasn't comfortable that I was the right man to do those jobs. Well, to do the jobs at the next level, yes. There were, there were three particular jobs I had in mind that I would love to have gone and done. But if I stayed in, there was no certainty I was going to do those jobs anyway. And so the fact that two of those jobs had gone already, and then I found out like just before I went down to a careers interview that the third job had been given to somebody else anyway, I thought, there is no way I'm going to get any of those jobs in the next year or two because they've all just been filled yeah. so that sort of pushed me in the direction of thinking it's time to go and do something else and i'd had a great time i'd run a squadron i'd run a station i'd done some fantastic flying i thought time to go interesting and uh, but i do agree with you you had done some of the best jobs in the air force at that point now your job with cobham sounds interesting mm -hmm. uh, flying target profiles mm -hmm. for the Navy and the RAF, which involved exciting flying when compared with most civilian jobs. But yep. you chose in the end to go to Flight Precision Limited, which calibrated airfield navigation and approach aids. On the surface, that seems an odd choice for someone with your flying background. Now, uh, I can correct, correct you if I may, Nick. Oh. I actually did both jobs together. Oh, because okay. what happened was I was recruited in as a Falcon captain mm. flying on the RAF support contract, which is very interesting flying. Uh, 18 months or so, 21 months into my time there, I finished up taking over running the operation up at Teesside. So when I took over running the operation, I didn't only take over the Falcon operation, but I also had responsibility for Flight Precision, who were a lodger on my unit, okay, uh, on, on, on the airfield there. So they were part of Cobham as well. So I had responsibility for them, but I was asked by my director of flying to get involved with their flying operation because he was based down at Bournemouth. He wanted me to be involved in their flying operation so I could report back to him on what was going on their flight ops side okay. because he was their director of flight operations. So he wanted me, in effect, in loco parentis keeping an eye on their operation. Yeah, because so he couldn't do it from he where he was, from I guess. 200 odd miles away. So I finished up 
getting checked out as a captain on the flight calibration contract. And I flew with them for the majority of my time thereafter up at Teesside, and it was only the last couple of years I stopped flying for them. So I was flying both the Falcon and the King Air at the same time, and I was also managing the Teesside operations. So I had responsibility for the hangar, hiring and firing, uh, and everything else that went with it. So it, it, was, a, it was a broad... Um, all-encompassing job with some very interesting flying in two completely different areas on two completely different aircraft as well. Interesting, yeah. It seems that some of your ideas uh, to develop the operations uh, under your responsibility met a little resistance. Mm. What might appear to be sensible and logical to you wasn't mm. always met with approval. Mm. Looking back, um, have you analysed your approach? Was it correct? Or perhaps could more have been achieved through negotiation? Yeah. Um, I do, yeah, I do think back to it, Nick, um, because it's a source of some frustration to me that in some ways it became a bit of a bone of contention uh, for the operation up there. And I, th I find that very sad. We did work reasonably hard up at Teesside, and I did make the point in my book that my crews up at Teesside were working quite noticeably more than the Bournemouth crews. Having said that, uh, the flying that we did up at Teesside was very enjoyable flying. We did some very good detachments to some interesting places. And so generally, I don't think there was any great resentment about the fact that we were working harder up at Teesside because the boys, the guys, say boys, we had girls as well, everybody enjoyed the flying that they did up there. Um, I think the... The contention arose because when the contract was set up initially, the work rate was relatively low. So it was not unusual for people to only work three days a week. And even when I joined the operation, I would think I would probably work three and a half days a week. In fact, most of the time I was living down at Stamford in Lincolnshire for various reasons. Um, and so it was not unusual for me to get home on Thursday night or to travel back sometime on Friday after flying and probably not drive up again until Monday morning or even Tuesday morning. So it was actually a nice relaxed work style. And I think as the years went on, our work rate increased, which was fine because that was what the contract asked for. Uh, we generally had the right number of crews and it just meant that people had to work harder. And I think the people who'd been in there at, at the start of the contract suddenly found they're being asked to work more and they weren't particularly happy about that. And the other issue is that we didn't run a standby system. We relied on good faith. And so people, I felt, tended to abuse that because if we finished up with somebody not able to come into work because they're unwell, the ops people would phone up and say, could you possibly come in because so-and-so is not well? And they'd say, well, no, I've planned to do something else today. So no, I'm not coming in. And so then you finish up in the difficult situation where you can't meet your contractual obligations um, because crews just say they're not coming into work. So it all came down to... And, and I, I would say that myself and the other managers would often pick up those ones. I'd come into the office some days and they'd say, Chris, you know, so-and-so can't come in this morning because they've, they've got a cold. And I'd say, it's all right, I'll, I'll go and do it. So I'd pick up the flight like that. So it was all done on a goodwill basis, and I think that goodwill sort of evaporated. Could we have done more by negotiation? Probably. Perhaps I was a little bit naive and being a bit hard-nosed about it, a little bit more operationally or, yes, operationally focused. 
and just expecting people to toe the line and get on with it. So yes, I, I'm, I'm not without blame, I think, in the fact that there was a little bit of difficulty. Having said that, over the time I was there, we met all our contractual ob obligations and uh, we also, most importantly, produced a very good output, I think, for the front line. One thing that struck me while we've been talking, Chris, is you've never been shy to do the jobs that mm. were unpopular and required a bit of extra work to mm. step in and uh, fulfil a flying um, commitment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Discover the pioneers of speed and adventure at one of the UK's most iconic museums. Whether it's a tour of the legendary Concorde, a walk around the Brooklyn's aircraft factory, or maybe a behind-the-scenes look at the McLaren automotive cars, the Brooklyn's Museum has it all. Based at Weybridge in Surrey, it's the perfect day out for all the family. We can also host your private function or meeting in one of our amazing event suites. With so much to see and do, come and take a look at Great Britain's history of speed and flight. Find out more by going to www www.brooklandsmuseum.com or give us a call on 01932 857 381 that's 01932 857 381 well wasn't that a fascinating uh, episode from chris and nick again i i just love listening to these loving this series and i really am chatting away yeah. it's the penultimate one and uh what Episode six is next week. Uh, Nine Lives is the book. This is a signed copy by Chris, and we're going to be giving it away as part of a competition uh, later in the year. Um, it will also be available on YouTube as a complete download or, or streaming for, or playlist rather, for the uh, the whole series. Um, also, the, last week, we've got another one lined up. So this next one is uh, Nat's Boys. It's written by Rick Peacock Edwards and Tom Eels. And uh, Nick, of course, used to fly with uh, Rick back in the day. So we went down to the West London Aero Club at White Waltham in Berkshire near Maidenhead and we did the interview down there. It's a quick, uh, quick snippet of uh, what you've got to come. I uh, had to stay current on um, quite a few types. At least one was operational so I went back to the tornado again. So I had a great tour there, um, basically sort of floating around the Air Force. Um, I had responsibility for the whole Air Force, I flew everything. <laughs> his last sentence there I had responsibility for the whole of the Air Force and I flew everything <laughs> I mean that just sort of sums up uh, so it rather, rather sets it up nicely doesn't it for the interview so. uh, uh, and Rick's quite a modest fellow with it but right. uh, honestly I had a long chat with him yesterday and uh, he very kindly bought Nick and I lunch as well which was even oh, better um, so the other thing that happened down at White Waltham yesterday is we bumped into a couple of uh, BA uh, pilots who are just going to their a320 sim i think today so jonathan and chris hope that went well for you and also bumped into a good chum of mine an industry chum as i like to say uh, chris fulton from future software he's been involved with british airways on their portable simulator uh, as well so on um, one of these days i'm going to try and persuade chris to let me take the cameras down to his place and we'll do um a bit of a, a session with him on what he's been doing there if the airline will allow us to do that that would be Sounds wonderful nice. can't so, wait yeah but uh, now looking forward to that very much so um so we must crack on and that can only mean one thing it's time for the military matt 
Low fuel light is on. We're down to zero. <laughs> Hit the button. Watch out, buggies. One, three, five, fifty, angel, sixteen, eight, three, four, zero. Okay. Now that was timing. Uh, for those of you, who can't, are you all right there on Monday? He's fine. Everything's awesome. Do, Don't mind me. Do you want to leave it in, or should we do that again? No, no, it's fine. Let's do it. Okay, all right. There you go. Then knock yourself out. <laughs> Speaking of hitting the button, uh, we always love a, a good pull the ejection handle story, especially when the pilot's safe. But just this week, down the street because I'm in Colorado down at uh, Hill Air Force Base in Utah, F-35 crashed. And uh, officials said that the pilot ejected and was actually recovered by emergency crews. This was Wednesday around 6.15 in the afternoon. Pilot was taken to a medical center for observation. Uh, this gentleman, Brock Thurgood, which uh, who owns property in South Weber near the base, said that the pilot landed near his property after ejection. And uh, Thurgood said that he he heard a loud boom and saw smoke. So he got into his all-terrain vehicle to investigate along with his daughter, two other nearby residents. Uh, According to his statement, he said that we went up there as we were driving down Canal Road, looking for a way to get up there. They looked over and they saw him. He was waving his arms, yelling and walking down the street towards us. Um, And it was the pilot. The uh, gentleman said that there's really not much more to say other than he's okay, and that's the most important part. Um, he said that the pilot was in fairly good shape when they rolled up on him. They, uh, his hands were a little bit bloodied, and he was a little bit banged up, but he was uh, walking, and he was coherent. Um, they said, they continued on to say that uh, didn't know how long, how I'd be after I was in the plane crash, but he was surprisingly tough. He just seemed like a really good person, even having just been through something that was probably pretty crazy to him. So I was, I thought about doing that in a Western accent, but my wife t- tells me that I do terrible accents. So probably would have just offended all kinds of people. Um, this gentleman, Thorogood, said that they sat with the pilot until the first responders arrived. Then the, they actually helped the first responders navigate the train to reach the pilot. All things considered, he was impressed that the pilot managed to avoid hitting any of the houses in the area, which was actually a a suburban area. Uh, One of the uh, spokespersons from the base, Colonel uh, Craig Anderley, said that he did know the pilot made his best effort to avoid any buildings, anything on the ground just prior to ejection, and that resulted with no injuries to anyone on the ground. Uh, The jet actually crashed at the north end of the runway, according to a tweet from the 388th Fighter Wing, which operates out of Hill Air Force Base. In a later tweet, officials asked civilians to avoid that area where the crash occurred. Um, A different um, witness said that they heard a noise, looked up, saw the plane with smoke pouring out of it. And all, you know, every time we have one of these incidents or mishaps, these witness accounts are are very, very important. Um, But he said that the aircraft, he saw the aircraft, just before it went down, he said there were parts flying everywhere, parts of the wings, the cockpit then just fired, but he was uh, also so glad to hear that the pilot was okay, as as are we here. So um, 
There you go. Injection seat's still working, and another F-35 goes down. So we'll see what happened with this one. Have you lot got an extended warranty on these things? Because you, you've been putting them off uh, aircraft carriers, crashing them left, right, and center. Do, do you not like them? The U.S. defense budget is like, it's the world. They'd be like the third largest economy. They're expendable. Pilots aren't. <laughs> but, no, I'm glad the pilots are safe, but the hardware, yeah, that's expendable. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you, you may notice that uh, Jonathan Warner is playing his usual game, by the way, of identifying the aircraft from the story that Armando has started and then set me the challenge to try and get it on air before he finishes talking. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening to the audio version, you should go check out the YouTube version. But, but that, that picture that Matt was just putting up there from Jonathan Warner, that's an amazing picture when the airplane is literally beating the moisture out of the air uh, uh, just so cool with those kinds of shots. I'm uh, trying to de- uh, trying to de- sort of describe how it's, you know, you know like perhaps you you might have seen let's say your parents doing like sort of like smoke rings. You know, like if they had a cigarette on the go and they'd done like smoke, it looks like essentially that is increasing in size, isn't it? And the aircraft is flowing through that smoke ring. Yeah, there was a different one. I think it was an F-22 from uh, the Edwards Air Show where that dark star was was uh, just displayed. Somebody else got a, a really, really amazing picture of, of the the clouds forming, you know, airplane going subsonic. Anyway, uh, let's uh, blast through this because we have uh, our first military actual list in a long time. So, Matt, you've got the next story about F-16s. Oh, have I? Right. Okay. Sorry. I was too busy adding photographs. Bear with. Uh- <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan Warner. That's what we call uh, chaff and flare right there. Oh, Making sure that. Very Matt good, doesn't very. know where he is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, there's no change there. I don't think anybody have ever, ever noticed, would they? Uh, it's uh, it's BulgarianMilitary.com is that I'll try. I'll put my camera on as well. Shall I? Shall I go nuts? Uh, it's BulgarianMilitary.com is the website, and the headline is Bulgaria is looking for F-16s to rent for the coming years. Bulgaria is looking for fighter jets for hire to take over combat duty in the coming years. The reason the 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 Big Twenty Nines can no longer be repaired because of the situation in Ukraine and because of the fighters' long-exceeded lifespan. F-16 fighters are are the preferred option. A similar position was experienced by the Chief of the General Staff in the Bulgarian Army, Admiral Emil Emov, uh, during a radio interview with the Bulgarian National uh, uh, Radio on... Oh, it's jumped around again. What is wrong with my... It's all going so well. Um, uh, Bulgarian National Radio on November the 16th. According to Admiral uh, Eftimov, I'm so sorry if I said that wrong, uh, it is best for Bulgaria to look for fighter jets for rent for the next three years. And if possible, they should be Lockheed Martin F-16s. There are two reasons for such a request. Bulgaria is... Uh, expecting the first delivery of eight F-16 fighter jets from the USA, which should arrive in the period 24 to 26. The second reason is that they are already trained by Bulgarian pilots to fly the F-16. the uh, BulgarianMilitary.com recalls that a few days ago, Bulgaria sent an inquiry to the USA for the order of a second set of F-16 fighter jets. Uh, Admiral Eftimov uh, uh, announced that uh, Sofia has already sent letters of request to partner countries for the lease of 
excess F-16 fighter jets from their air forces. The Bulgarian senior officer announced that at the moment there is no response from any partner country, but he did not want to say which countries have received such a letter. Uh, Bulgaria currently operates mainly two types of combat aircraft, the MiG-29 fighters 12 units and the Su-25 attack aircraft, that's 13 units. units. Uh, the, this particular website also recalls that according to Spanish sources, Bulgaria provided through third party its Su-25s uh, Su to Ukraine uh, delivered in parts. Now, um, the, the, one of the reasons why this story is making me smile is do, do, does an Air Force have aircraft just lying around not being used? <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of like... You know, I, I know some budgets are not not a, you know for some aircraft some budgets are not an issue, but uh, you know the the idea that there might be several F-16s just lying around not doing anything seems a bit bizarre to me. Well, I think asking. this is similar. To... Go ahead, Andy. I was going to say it's it's worth asking around to see if there are any. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, mean... it's like the Boeing Airbus thing. You know, if you can if you can rent somebody else's airplane cheaper or get them at. at you know, a cut rate because <laughs> they're not being flown, Yeah, true. then true. you can save a lot of money that way. But this is, you know, another, another snub at Russia because they're, you know, picking F-16s over their MiG-29s. And, and this is now the third or fourth Air Force that has just in, this, this year since the beginning of the conflict uh, decided to go with Western aircraft instead of Russian-made aircraft. So, um and 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 this was on the heels of Bulgaria providing those those Su-25s to Ukraine, which they do fly, even if they just use them for parts for you know during the conflict. I'm sure there was some uh, you know behind the scenes deals being done about if you do this, then we'll facilitate you guys getting F-16s. Yeah, well, yeah, I. <laughs> It's just, it's just, they're so, uh, sorry, it's still making me laugh. I mean, they're such expensive units. I mean, planes aren't cheap, you know. It's just the, the idea that there's you know, a handful just lying around doing that all amuses me. Well, as as Neil points out in the chat room, if you if you bring up some Google Earth imagery of the uh, of the boneyard there at Davis Monthan, you could probably see a hundred F sixteens sitting on the ground. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, wow. Wow. Anyway, this story, this next story, I really wanted to get to, and uh, I would love to get your guys' take on this. So, Andy, you've got this one. Yeah, uh, so this is from aviation24.be. Uh, this is former United Kingdom military pilots provide training to the People's Liberation Army of China. So China hired 30 former UK military pilots to provide training to the People's Liberated Army of China. The armed forces will be trained and taught how to fight Western fighter jets and helicopters, British government's officials have revealed. In this way, China wants to gain a strategic advantage over the West in the event of war. Since the end of 2019 and the start of the pandemic, China has been making increasing efforts to bring former Western pilots on board. Not only former pilots, but also serving pilots and other specialists from the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy and the British Army are eligible, as well as military personnel from other Western countries. The Chinese interest appears to be great for pilots with years of experience flying British and other NATO combat aircraft, including the Typhoon, Tornado and the Harrier. Uh, 
China is said to have lured 30 mainly ex-fighter pilots, but also some helicopter pilots with annual salaries of more than 20... No, I can't read. 275,000 euros. The Chinese military is said uh, to have tried to recruit former pilots with experience with the F-35 fighters, but so far these efforts have proved unsuccessful. The situation is so serious that the British Ministry of Defence raised the alarm on Tuesday to warn on-duty and former military personnel about such practices. When former UK military pilots provide training to the People's Liberation Army of China, it clearly erodes the UK's defence advantage. We are taking immediate steps to deter and penalise this activity. Defence intelligence are engaged with the individuals already involved to ensure they are fully aware of the risk of prosecution under the Official Secret Act. The government's national security bill will capture a range of relevant activity and provide additional possible routes to prosecution. We are conducting a review of the use of confidential agreements across defence with the aim of providing additional contractual levers to prevent individuals breaching security. There we go. Wow. Well, I'm sure there's a fine line. It's not illegal. And I'm sure there is a fine line between sharing your experience and sharing actual classified tactics, techniques, and procedures. Um, I guess if you're, everybody has their prices. Somebody said in the chat room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, the Official Secrets Act does not end for you when you've left the Air Force. Does not. That, no. that is a lifelong... Um, commitment, yeah. Commitment to to secrecy, isn't it? Yeah. I would be interested to see what what these pilots are actually going to share. You mm. know, because I, I, it that you can only go so far before you start getting into confidential information or classified yeah. information. Um, I mean. Uh uh, gen genuinely, uh, this is a genuine question because I, I remember um, this was before you left um, the UK and you and I had gone out for a bite to eat and I was asking you lots and lots of questions and I was very sort of, uh, well, not, in, you know, I was sort of asking questions, if you like, that you, you were sort of being very tactful about answering, if you see what I mean. So, and, and, and what I took from that, obviously, was it's like, you know, absolutely, you know, there are still things as much as you'd love to be able to sort of share it with people. Obviously, there are things that you just, you know, there are things that you know of that you will never be able to share, you know, with the wider public or, or even us. Do you know what I mean? You know, one of those things. I mean, so how does a story like this sort of make you feel? Um, well, I, I'll address the first part, I think, I, for any of us, whether, you know, Nick or, or any of our interviewees, but it would it's almost the same if you, you know, like our, the professional pilots that we have uh, on the show are very much aware that there's a line you can't cross when you bring your employer into it. Um, but we are very well versed in where that line is. I think guys like me and Nick, uh, you know, and some of the, the other podcast community, prior military folks, we have taken an extra step to think about how we're going to portray our experiences, our, yeah. uh, our training, but, but, but we wouldn't embark on this if we didn't, if we weren't clear as to where that line is. Right. Yeah. Um, this, 
particular story. And as Micah said in the chat room, this is not a news story. This happens in every conflict. Everybody is always trying to be lured. Your enemy is always trying to lure you to to share even the, the smallest amounts of information because each nugget of information amalgamated equals a good amount of information. Mm. Um, so if each one of these 30 pilots gives them a nugget, yeah. they can probably put together a pretty good picture yeah. uh, and they know exactly what they're doing. So I- Interestingly, Chris says you, ju- you just get used to saying, I can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, and that, that's a pretty abrupt end to the conversation. Usually, usually we, yeah. we work up to that, that uh, full stop of a conversation. Um, <laughs> you know, you'll dance around it and you'll kind of say, well, you know, I, it's, it's probably not best. And you hear politicians do it. You hear yeah. uh, public briefings by military officials. Um, they'll step right up to the line until, until whoever it is asking the questions doesn't get the hint. And then at that point you can just say, look, that's, that's a, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Next question. Yeah. Do you, do you think that would be a difficult thing to do if you were in China away from everybody else? They've just paid you this big chunk of money and they keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. Absolutely. I think it's, it's I think it's difficult from day, from day one, from the moment you accept that offer, yeah. because they're going to expect more and more and more. And now, now you're on their territory. Yeah. Right. So now you're in China. You've just signed up for a contract contract or an agreement and one you have to get back home two they're going to ex- you you can almost be assured that they're going to expect more than they initially told you they were going to expect and they're going to put their best people on it <clears throat> to extract that information so they're not they're not that nev, nev is probably uh, the only person i can have this conversation who probably remen- remembers a program called yes minister uh, and and there's one of a, one of these very very famous sketches that uh, where you've got the two civil servants sat at, sat in the houses of parliament having dinner uh, saying to one you know and how, how is the uh, how is the conversation about the freedom of information act going and and sir humphrey saying i'm afraid i can't talk about that it, you know it's that same sort of <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing isn't it it's that that sort of thing it's uh i i think it's a very um strange decision from perhaps people who should know better perhaps that's my my take on it anyway yeah they may have been specifically targeted for these officer offers though yeah maybe you, you know this is why your data protection your personal data protection is is important because they may know something mm-hmm. that it, that you don't announce publicly that you need the money mm-hmm. and- yeah the MOD are worried enough about it to make it public. True. Yeah. True. 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 Well, speaking of money, how do you guys want to do this list? We're going to talk about affordable warbirds. So this is this is not taking into account P51s and Spitfires, which go anywhere from you know a million to five million. Pick your currency. Uh, so we can go from fancy and expensive to attainable or start cheap and go to everybody's dreams. What do you, what do you guys figure? We're going to keep it. We're going to cap it at 200,000 us dollars. Wow. Uh, I've got to be honest. I've looked through some of these and I think I know what one of them is. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, good. That's where we're going to do it. Come on in. Right. You want to go cheap to expensive? Yeah. Let's do it that way. Yeah. All right. So here we go. So this is, we don't, we don't even have music for military lists. The music is classified. Like we're talking about. Um, so this, this whole list is, is warbirds that you can actually own 
for under $200,000. Now this first, the first four, I'm gonna wrap up into one. Thank you. <laughs> so Warbirds <laughs> under 50,000 US dollars. What is that about? Oh yeah, 50,000 pounds. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes, utterly worthless. <laughs> yeah. 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 Powerful. So basically anybody can buy one of these. The first oh, right. four <laughs> are essentially uh, versions of the Piper Cub. This is the Taylorcraft L2 Grasshopper, the Aronka L3 Grasshopper, the Piper L4 Grasshopper, and the Stinson L5 Sentinel. Uh, all of these are different versions of the Piper J3 Cub. They were used as liaison aircraft. They were used as forward air control aircraft in World War II. Uh, all together, there were about uh, close to 10,000 of these made. So there's plenty of them out there. So there you go. So That's so so, so we we'll get changed for fifty thousand pounds for those then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can go out and buy one today. In fact, we probably have enough in the PTUK coffers. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll buy one of that. Right. Okay. Very good. And, uh, well, one that one that is over there is the Auster AOP nine, a single engine reciprocating uh, monoplane observation aircraft used by Britain's Royal Air Force, similar in size and mission to the the J3 Cub or the or the Grasshopper. But this aircraft was operated by the Hong Kong Air Force, the Indian Air Force, the Indian Army. About 200 of them were built. So you're going to have to work a little bit harder to find one. But that's that's your list below 50,000. All right. Yeah. So next, below $100,000. The first one is the Ryan PT-22 Recruit. Look it up. We didn't have pictures because most of you are listening to the audio version anyways. Um, <laughs> the P-222 was a military aircraft, trainer aircraft used by the Army Air Corps. Uh, low wing, single wing, pilot, uh, primary pilot training. About a thousand of these made. Pretty classic looking. You know, they had like the silver and the, and the yellow wings. The PT-19, the Fairchild PT-19, is an iconic aircraft. I think I remember having a, a model, like a little plastic model of one of these. 8,000 of those were made. Um, the Tiger Moth, the De Havilland Tiger Moth. Uh, and you, yeah, many of your pilots learned to fly in a Tiger Moth. 10,000 of these were built, used all over the world. And those are also under 100,000 US dollars. Um, the quintessential chipmunk. I know Captain Nick would probably love to buy a chipmunk. Sure. <laughs> a few of my friends want chipmunks, and they are clearly lying to their wives. <laughs> if, if, if this is above the 50 grand margin but below 100 yeah, but anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> well the only reason i was able to justify the purchase of our aircraft uh our cub was because megan was involved in the in the in the deal otherwise i probably would have had to do the same and tell her oh no no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um here was a, a couple interesting ones the Yak-52, a single-engine radial engine, a primary train aircraft used by the Soviet Air Force, um, actually up to the 80s. The Yak-52, wow. yeah, it was a really great airplane. And here, there are a bunch of them here in the U.S. that are used in aerobatics and airship. And we, we featured uh, Mike Wildman, of course, uh, with his interview with Nick, uh, who mm. was flying the uh, Yak-52 uh, yeah. some time ago, yeah. 
indeed. Yeah, very popular aircraft. Uh, can I ask? Um, a, can I ask a question? Question on behalf of Bill in the chat room here, and I want to know the question of this. Can in any of the in the the fifty thousand and the hundred thousand, can one get one's hand on uh, one with a Merlin powered engine in it? No, for oh. fifty. For fifty thousand, you could probably get a disused, non-functional Merlin oh, engine. Oh, poo! Yeah, just ask the, just ask the fine folks over at Duxford how much they pay for their maintenance. Okay, don't want to know. Yep. <laughs> um, let's see. The last one in the hundred thousand mark is the Nanchang CJ6, or commonly known as a CJ6. It's uh, similar to the Air Force's T6, or the same as the Yak 52, just a Chinese version of this. Um, but those are actually pretty popular here in the U.S. too, for uh, for up right around the hundred thousand mark. Now, under two hundred thousand dollars, and this one I'm going to buy one of these for Megan at, at one point. Number one on this list. You guys guess which one it is, without looking at the show notes. She just flew one this 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 uh, last month, this summer. So Boeing Stearman. The Boeing Stearman, all of its different versions, the N2S, the uh, uh, Model 75, whatever you want to call it, uh, you can actually get one of these for anywhere between $100,000 to $200,000 for a Stearman. It's considered like an entry-level warbird. Wow. So, yeah. Hardest one to fly, but entry-level warbird. Um, the next one on the list is actually uh, the Booker BU-131 Youngman, and there's well, so you can get an authentic one for $200,000. Or there's actually a company in the Czech Republic, I believe, that makes a experimental light sport version of the Booker Youngman. Looks exactly like it, except it has a modern engine. And I believe you can get that for, like, under $100,000. Um, really cool-looking airplane. Uh, next one on the list, very popular aerobatic airplane, T-34, the Beechcraft T-34 Mentor, which is essentially a Beechcraft Bonanza with the pilot sitting... You know, front tandem, front and back. A very popular, very rugged airplane that will last you forever, actually. And it's, you know, a beach bonanza. Um, the T-6 Texan, we uh, talked about this one at Reno. This is It's got its own class out there at Reno Air Races. Uh, another very difficult, if you look at uh, what, Flight Chops, I think Flight Chops on YouTube. He flew a t6 or a or a harvard i think they call them up there in canada um really nice airplane right at the two hundred thousand mark but now you're talking that's just to purchase the airplane because I, I think they're burning something like 60 gallons an hour uh is there a fuel burn um and the last one that was on this under two hundred thousand was actually one of my favorite aircraft it's not there in the show notes but it was the Beechcraft Beach 18, which was used as a tram transport. And now you're getting into twin radial engines, very classic airplane. If you remember the movie 1941 with John Belushi, I think they flew one in this amongst other, other movies. So there you go. That's your list of if you have a spare $200,000 and you want to buy a Warbird and go wear a flight suit and go to all the air shows and get paid for it, <laughs> these are some of the airplanes that you can buy. It's uh, it's a, a amazing thing. Andy's just sent me a a picture actually, which I'm desperately trying to to get uh, up here. That is, uh, we, we were mentioning the uh, Merlin engine uh, just a moment ago, and the this picture that Andy has sent me. Hopefully, it's going to come up. Just give me two very uh, sorry. This is rubbish on the audio well, version. Uh, <laughs> but uh, here we while, go. Uh, 
There we go. So this this is this is a Merlin Rolls Royce Merlin engine attached to a dragster, <laughs> and it made a lot of noise. I can imagine. Oh, how beautiful would that be? Was it fast, or is is it one of those sort of? They didn't even race. It was at no. the NEC uh, Autosport Show. They turned it on, and uh, I think I've lost a few years hearing. Very good, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely love that. Yes, sorry, I, uh, sorry, Armando, do carry on. <laughs> No, no, that's, that was it. That was the end of the list. But the yeah. guys in the chat room are all saying, you know, so Neil flew in a in a Tiger Moth, uh, probably there at, uh, at Duxford, uh, Bicester. Um, Micah says you better know how to do crosswinds if you fly a Stearman. That is a very true statement. I <laughs> I purposely sought out a Stearman checkout because people told me it was the hardest airplane to land in winds uh, wow. prior to flying that DC three. And uh, and then there's a lot of love for the uh, for the Beach 18 too, yeah. which I think Jonathan Warner has like my favorite picture ever that he's taken was of a Beach 18 at one of these air shows. Oh really? There was that one with the real like uh, dark background and the beautiful lighting. Is that what but- he sent? Oh no, no I-, I wondered if that was what he sent me. That was all. Uh, he did send me a picture, but uh, there we go. anyway, uh, I'm afraid, guys, we are pretty much out of time. Oh, this this one he says. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me do. I, I ain't going to be able to load it up in time, but because uh, we really do need to wrap up. But uh, that one he's, is the one he's talking yeah. to about. I say with the, the sort of like almost the night sky with the lights and the propellers and all that kind of thing. Very beautiful. Yeah. Indeed. I think it's we save the the, uh, the caption competition then for next week. Yes, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That. We just talk too much. We do clearly. Yes. Uh, can I before we wrap up though? Can I just very quickly mention uh, military mugs? Now, Armando, you have now received one of these. We sent you one this week, uh, obviously as the you know the, the the military expert to make sure that they were uh, to the standard that you were hoping. Yeah, I received it. I put it through its paces. The prototype did just fine. I shot it. Um, I drank whiskey out of it. I drank some hot coffee, put it in the dishwasher, pretty much all the tests that you have to, you know, put any military of piece of it. And it, <laughs> it, uh, it, it came out just fine. Unscathed actually. Very good, very good. So uh, a couple of people have uh, expressed interest. They'll be on the website very, very soon. Uh, but if you would like to reserve yourself one of these uh, military mugs, uh, then do get in touch via email. It's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com, uh, expressing your interest. And then as soon as we've got an idea of how many people want the initial batch, then we can get some ordered, uh, and then we can give you some prices and stuff like that. So if you would like to get your hands on one of our military mugs, please send us an email email to uh to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com while i'm doing that let's just i'll just whiz through all the socials very very quickly uh whatsapp number here uh to get a message into the show it is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six uh social media links all you need to do is search your favorite social media platform for plain talking uk uh, that's instagram Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Plain Talking UK. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. The email address it is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. You can also send in your request for the military mugs. Please do send us in some feedback as well. We'd love to hear from you and we'll include it in next week's show or as soon as we get it. And where the mugs will eventually be able for you, available for you to purchase, uh, along with many other things, plaintalkinguk.com. www.plaintalkinguk.com. 
talkinguk.com. On there, we have links to the various platforms on how to listen to the show. Also, uh, how you can contribute towards the show to help pay for the running costs uh, via Patreon and other such services, including Amazon. So uh, just by doing your normal Amazon shopping, you can use our link and you can actually help uh, pay for the the way that the show uh, is put together. That's it for the social links. Nev. Yeah, so just like to thank Andy very much indeed for coming on. Really enjoyed your contributions as always. What's uh, What are you up to next week then, Andy? Oh, pleasure uh, as always to be here. Like I said, very little. I'm off to Cyprus on uh, Wednesday. Once I have finished uh, doing what I'm doing in Gatwick, I'm just sitting on the jump seat and expanding my horizons with new courses and stuff at work. <laughs> um, then, yeah, then I'm off on holiday. But no, it's been great being on again. It's been lovely to see you all. I'm quite surprised. I forgot to mention, is this a contractually agreed uh, you two have to be on the show, Nev, Armando? Is this one of your... Oh, that's true, isn't it? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Special negotiations have to take place, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I've forgotten that. Yeah. Um, Armando, <laughs> what, what are you up to next week? Um, well, the rest of this weekend, we're, we're going to... Megan and I are going to go hang out at the U.S. Air Force Academy here in Colorado Springs. Going to do some hiking, go to a football game. And then everybody's favorite. Next week, I'm back in recurrent, so... Two days of ground, three days in the sun. Oh, nice. Well, I'm off to Helsinki on Monday Ooh. for work uh, on an A350-900 with the Finnair boys and girls. One of my favourite aircraft, actually, the A350, nice and quiet. And it's a good good aircraft on that kind of route, actually, so I'm looking forward to I that. I bet. I bet. Very much, indeed. Um, so, guys and girls, that's it. Thank you very much indeed for a fantastic show. And thank you to everybody in the chat room for all of your contributions as well. We'll rerun, the, we'll run the uh, caption competition next week. And it's quite a fun one as well. So, uh, thanks very much indeed to everybody. And bye for now. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. Yeah.